Chapter 1. I've been investigating cold cases in Georgia for two years. A common thread between all the cases I've investigated, no matter how many months or years have passed, is that it always seems to be about two people, one person who cannot speak because they're missing or have been murdered, and another person who won't speak because they know what happened. The voiceless victims have always intrigued me. It's my goal to tell their story, breaking a silence that's endured for decades in some cases, breaking a silence of someone who knows something, because sometimes there's a third person who holds the secret. A lot of people have talked over the years about two Atlanta women, Mary Shotwell Little and Diane Shields. One vanished, one murdered. But have those who've talked told the right clue, or even the truth, to end the mystery surrounding these two unsolved cases in Atlanta after more than 50 years? Or have they just led investigators down more rabbit holes for another 50? The last thing I want to do is buy into a conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, I always look for the simplest explanation, and then if that doesn't work, then we can think about other things. But everybody wants to make things convoluted in a, in a big conspiracy. But then the other part of me is like, there are no coincidences. So Shields' murder a couple of years after Mary Little's disappearance is like, okay, this can't be a coincidence. From 11alive.com, Tegna Media, and the Gone Cold series, I'm Jessica Knoll. This is Five Roses. I can say that's when Atlanta really lost its innocence. East Point was Mayberry back then. You know, people did not lock their doors because they had no fear of burglaries or anything like that happening. Bob Matthews, a retired investigator from East Point Police Department, just a hop and a skip from Atlanta, is talking about what happened to his hometown after the disappearance of Mary Shotwell Little in 1965, and then the murder of Diane Shields just 18 months later. It was the first time something of that magnitude had happened. People realized that they were vulnerable, starting with, with Mary Shotwell Little. You know, it's people realize that everything is not as it seems. You know, it's not this little safe haven that we always thought it was, that bad things can happen. And bad things would continue to happen. It's a story like so many before. Two small town women in their 20s moved to the big city with even bigger dreams. But their stories are not like everyone else's. The two strangers' stories will be forever intertwined, impacting the city, creating fear among its women, permanently changing the landscape of false security in a booming city amid the shadows of alleged corruption, sex scandals, and murder. That was kind of when the Atlanta metropolitan area lost its innocence. So it changed the atmosphere of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you had a large segment of women that were now in the workforce downtown, you know. Now they're scared because they don't know what's you know, a lot will happen to them. You know, all of a sudden, where you once thought you were safe, you weren't. I wanted to know more about their cases, so I called John Fedak, a retired DeKalb County police officer, and told him I wanted to do a story. He was nearly giddy describing Mary and Diane's stories as the holy grail of cold cases. I met with John at Cheryl McCollum's digs, the Hapeville Police Department. She's the crime scene investigator for Hapeville, and she's the one who really piqued my interest in these two cold cases while we were talking about another case months earlier. 
Her no-holds-bar personality creates this dogged determination when it comes to investigations, especially these two cases. We sat down inside the police department, which is attached to the small town's courtroom. That's where we pull up some chairs to a long boardroom-style table. Should I be at the end of the The police station and adjoining courthouse lie just underneath the shadow of the Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport. Outside, you can hear the rumble of the jet overhead as John starts in about Mary. So, I guess just start with what we're here to talk about, who we're here to talk about. Mary Shotwell Little was a young 25-year-old woman that apparently was abducted from Lenox Square Mall, which is in North Atlanta, on October the 14th, 1965. Um, She vanished into thin air. A few hours later, her car was located back at the mall. It appeared to have been moved, appeared to have been brought back. When the police looked at the vehicle, uh, her underwear was in the car neatly folded in between the seats. There was red dust all over the car like it had been driven down a dirt road. There were blood smears on the on the back seat, on the window. Um, there were groceries in her car that she had been shopping for the night before. That evening before, she had met a girlfriend from work. They had dinner, did some shopping, and then she was gonna go home. She vanished, and that was the start of the Mary Shotwell Little investigation for Atlanta police and the FBI. Cheryl was a teenager when Mary disappeared from Lenox Square, and it didn't just spook the city, it hit close to home for her mother. It was a case that shocked the city, and women, it changed the way they shopped, literally. I can remember my mother was petrified to go anywhere by herself because they thought this person was out there that was going to snatch everybody. Even when I was in my early 20s, I got a job at Lenox. I was working security at Rich's, and she was petrified that I was going to go to Rich's at night and leave and go in the parking lot. So, you know, there were all these rumors about who it might be and what might have occurred, but literally it paralyzed this city for a little bit. When it started, it started as a little spark, and then the more that came out, a few weeks, a few months, there truly was a firestorm, and it didn't stop, because every time it calmed down, something new would come out about her background, where she worked, possible perpetrator. Then there was the North Carolina angle that we'll talk about in a few minutes that that just set the whole thing back again, Mm -hmm. so it, it never would stop. And then, I think it was 17 months later, there was a homicide in East Point, Georgia, of a young girl that was found in the trunk of her car. Horrible, grisly murder. And and there were a lot of connections, a lot of similarities between the first young lady, Mary, and this young lady, Diane. John has been working on a documentary linking the two women and their equally terrifying demises. Cheryl remembers Mary as an innocent newlywed, just starting a new life with her husband when all hell broke loose. But you know, when it started, you just hear this young wife, she'd only been married six weeks. She was cute, she was young, she had just started this life, you know, had a little apartment over on Line Street in DeKalb. Everybody was just, who could have taken her? Who could have wanted to hurt her? And I think, again, the Atlanta police, they were perplexed by, you know, you're talking about at that time, Lenox Square was a posh, hip. I mean, that was like the place to go. People dressed up to go there. So the fact that she was maybe kidnapped from there only added to everybody's mystery of whoever this person would have been that would have hurt her or kidnapped her or whatever happened to her. And then there's Diane. 
On Saturday, May 19, 1967, Diane Shields, a 22-year-old in the height of planning her upcoming wedding, is found murdered in the trunk of her own car. She was on her way home from Associated Industries, four o'clock in the afternoon, she was on her way home, vanished. And that's about a 25-minute drive. Right, and that's what I'm saying. That's just as significant, because that tells you more about the person that got her and killed her. Again, just like this guy, crowded. Not worried about it. Broad daylight, not worried about it. Who is that person? Yeah, buddy. Sleep tight, Atlanta. (laughs) And like John said, he's out there. Or they. Or was for a long period of time. Or they. And do you think? Most likely they. You think it was multiple? I do. I think logistically with the cars, you had to have somebody, don't you? Had to be. Had to be. Yep. And it almost looks like, Diane almost looks like a mob hit. How so? Talk of the car, it's her car, beaten unrecognizable but not sexually assaulted. So here's the deal. People are killed for three reasons. Revenge, sex, and money. That's it. And then there's a fourth one, which is batshit crazy, but you recognize that. So nothing was stolen from her. Her engagement ring was on, which is probably the most valuable thing she had. Her car wasn't stolen. So money's off the table. Okay, let's look at sex then. And she wasn't raped. Sex is off the table. She was not sexually assaulted. Her underwear was on, her dress was pulled down. She was not sexually assaulted. So sex is off the table. That only leads you revenge. Who was that mad at that girl? To beat her unrecognizable. Her fiance had to identify her based on her dress and her engagement ring. Who? The suspect pool should be this big. It should have been solved in four days, five days. Five days. Five days. Because it's over the weekend and a few people didn't get into a Monday morning. Five days. And it's been 50 years and six months. And you're an investigator, you've seen something. But as, as my friend Cheryl alluded to, the crime scene photos for Diane, are, they, they, they keep me awake. Yeah. They just, mm-hmm. they just, God, you know, the language I want to use, it just breaks my heart. The yeah. poor girl. What she went through, and then Di- and Mary, just stretched that out for ten hours. Think about that. Ten hours. That's how long Mary was gone before someone noticed, and no one knows what happened in that time frame. Well, not sure anyway. But evidence would point to the possibility that she was taken, her car taken, and then parked in the Lenox Square lot. But Mary was still missing. Because see, on the one hand, you think, okay, well, let's say it was a rapist. And he beat her and then was interrupted by somebody, you know what I mean, to get away. Again, he put that child in her own car and drove her with a dead body in the car Mm -hmm. from wherever he originally assaulted her. And we know it wasn't there because the way the blood was. So this, again, is somebody that is not afraid. And so he wasn't in a hurry. So again, if that was his motive... It would have been more clear, and it's just not. This was just a straight-up murder. So to me, that's why it looks like a mob hit. They often use the victim's own car. Yeah. They often use the trunk. It's often brutal to send that message. What was Atlanta like back then? I mean, Mm. was the mob scene present? Sure. You, You had the largest city in the South. And suddenly, we've got stadiums. We've got the tallest hotel. More than 50 Um, years have gone by. Detective after detective have investigated every person, every clue, 
every lead possible. Common threads in each case unravel a new mystery. I'm a straight shooter. You ain't seen nothing yet. You haven't. You ain't seen nothing. When you start digging, you start talking to people. I'm and telling you. Just like me, just like Cheryl. Questions beget questions. Yep. Somebody's going to say, "Oh, you know, go call Joe. Go call." You're going to you're going to have a laundry list of people, stuff, suspects. It, it is people yep. are going to climb. They're going to be like bugs out of the the woodwork. Now, a task force, including John and Cheryl, has gathered, giving fresh eyes to two cases that have baffled everyone else in Atlanta for decades. Their grit and determination will unravel old secrets and new theories. But will they finally be able to solve these cold cases that have cast a shadow of the unknown and fear over Atlanta? And we have a wonderful, well-trained, nationally known CSI looking at it. We have three investigators. We have a FBI profiler looking at it. Um, uh, an assistant attorney general for, uh, in a neighboring state, a sitting district attorney in a neighboring county, after 52 years, everybody knows this, you know, A, it needs to be solved, and B, there's a lot more to it than, than people know. Tremendous amount of story. It's the best story, saddest story, most tragic story. You know, it's, 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 it's compelling on every sense, on every level it's compelling. Agreed. You can't go to a dinner party and mention this story or bring it up or start telling it people aren't captivated. And terrified. Still terrified because whoever did it, both of them are still out there, both unsolved homicides. You don't have that. You have a few, but you don't have that. Not when, not when the pressure of that bank and the city came down on that lieutenant and those investigators. You've got to solve this. You don't understand. And, and Cheryl's read the reports, I've read mm-hmm. the reports, Atlanta police and the FBI. You, if you, they asked you a question, you were going to answer the question. Back then, things were different. You, I mean, you, and they dug, they went to neighboring states. They, they dug up everything they could, and they're still unsolved. And you describe this story as, as an onion. Yes. How so? It, it, on so many levels, on so many different layers of this story, it's just a pure young girl gets grabbed by a predator on the street, sure. That, that theory works for about 10 or 12 hours, then that blows up. Then you have a, uh, a job, possible uh, crime that's to shut her up, that blows up. Every time you have a theory, every time you go down the road, you hit a roadblock, the roadblock doesn't make any sense, you back up, you go around. Like I said, when you have cold case investigators that have done this for 30 years, we, we start again, we read through everything, right. they, get, they get so far, they throw their hands up. Why is this case so important to you? Because you're, I mean, you're investigating this on your own time. Yes. And it's grabbed your attention. Why is it so um, important that, that this case gets solved? I'll let you go first and then I'll answer. Okay. Again, my intention was not to spend a decade on this case. Um, when I started in 2004, I really thought, you know, you work a year or so and maybe you can have some movement. Maybe you can think of something that... Uh, nobody else has thought of or see a connection that other people have missed. But, you know, like John said, there's twists and turns on this case that as soon as you think, nope, I got to go right, it's definitely right, this case will force you to go left. And then you go left, you go, okay, I went left, I'm good now. Nope, now you're going to go straight to the right. And you're just like, what in the world? Like, things that you think are going to make sense, like in the beginning, it makes sense that you're going to look at the husband. It's almost always the husband. So they spent a lot of time doing that. But it wasn't the husband. Well, then there's all these 
sub-stories and sub-characters that force you to go, huh. So they can't mention the love shack or they can't mention lesbians or they can't mention the drug world or they can't mention, you know, politicians taking money under the table without you having to go and look at that. Well, that takes you into these rabbit holes that, Lord, now three years have gone by and you're no further than you were. So it was a case that I can remember my mother talking about. So I thought that would be, you know, something really cool to be able to go back and talk to my sisters about that. Hey, you know, that case mama was always so crazy about. We actually did something on that case. And then on a personal level, I've got a decade invested now, John. We we need to do something um, just because I think it's that important. And um, I mean, Mary's parents are gone. There's really not anybody else that's going to fight for her. So I think that's what we should do. Bingo. Mary's gone. I'm sorry. The parents are gone. Husband's still alive. But, I mean, I could talk for 15 hours why, why I'm doing this. Um, I'd say on about three different levels. Um, I was 14 years old when it occurred. So 52 years. Do the math. Um, it's bothered me. It's wrong. I have children. I had this sister. I had a mom. It's wrong. Whoever did that needs to be, uh, arre- if they're alive, arrested prosecuted, put in prison, whatever. Whoever was involved in it needs to be dug up, drug up, humiliated, put in court. They, that needs, it has to happen. And I think the talking to these people, and I used to work with, this, well, I was with the Cat County Police, as the uh, son of the lead investigator and I got to be friends. So for, like I said, for 52 years, little things have been bothering me. And I just started working on this and I talked to detectives, I talked to investigators, I talked to CSI people and they say, I'm in, sure, it's wrong. That somebody's walking around that, that murdered a girl, mm-hmm. that kidnapped a girl, they're, they may be dead, maybe they're still walking around, that's wrong. And you know, you can't be a dad, you can't be a husband, you can't be a human being and not try to do something if you can do something. And, and here I am, that's why I'm doing it. Cheryl, the founder of the Cold Case Research Institute, took a calculated approach known to most investigators when she first looked into Mary's case. Hey, a lot of cold cases, you kind of hit a wall and you're like, oh, well, unless I get more leads, there's nothing else I can do. It doesn't seem to be the case with this where Mm -hmm. you're continuously looking at it from different angles, from Mm -hmm. different theories. Um, Tell me a little bit about that and kind of how you come up with some of the um, I guess, roads you go down? Well, I can tell you, for me, I always like to start at the crime scene. That's real important for me. So even though I had been to Lenox thousands of times, it's different when you go there and you look as a crime scene. Like, So I'm going to analyze this completely differently now. So she went here to the grocery store, but she parked here. You know, where visually could the killer have been stalking her, watching her, ready to pounce, what did he use to get into her car, Um, how did he subdue her, how did nobody see this. So you want to walk it so that you can truly understand it. And then what's really paramount for me is then you have to factor in what it looked like in 1965. So again, she's going to be covered and surrounded by trees. There was no Dante's down the hatch. There was no Houston's. There were no hotels. It was woods all around there. So conceivably, he could have grabbed her and just drug her into the woods if it was just some quick attack. So the fact that it wasn't this, again, I like to start ground zero at the crime scene. 
for me. Exactly. Now, go, go, here's Mary Shot Will Little and then Diane Shields. And, and I'm work, we're, we are all working on Mary Shot Will, Diane Shields comes up, and something's bothered me for weeks and weeks, and it's, it hits me. A month from now is the 50th anniversary of Diane Shields. And so I go out to East Point Police, I meet mm-hmm. the major, blah, 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 we talk. And I said, are you going to have some people down there? And he said, no, we're not going down there. I said, I am. I said, it's, I, you know, I don't want to go. I don't, you know, I'm not looking for trouble, but somebody needs to go down to that scene that night after midnight and sit there. <laughs> not that the bad guy's going to have a sign or, or a, a cape or That's anything, but, awesome. but you don't know. You don't know. And somebody's right got to go down there. So I said goodbye to my wife, patted the dog, drove down there scared the hell out of me between you and me. Mm-hmm. It was spooky, it was dark, it was ugly, and it kept coming back after 50, 50 years. This young girl is sitting right there. So before I went there, I went to her house, mm-hmm. I drove around, I took two different paths that she would have taken, dark, spooky, ugly, and it, and it just it just emphasized and just pushed me, you're gonna keep doing this, you're gonna find out what happened to that girl mm-hmm. if you possibly can. That's right. John retraced Diane's last moments, leading him to the laundromat where she was found to try to make sense of what happened and why. Later, I would also go to that same scene. After doing his own digging on Diane's case from 1967 and Mary's case from 1965, he started reaching out to others who might have an interest in putting their investigative minds together to finally solve these cases. But in 50 years, the tools have changed. And let me tell you, John has put together a task force. It is just elite. And the thing is, time helps with cold cases as much as anything. So not only now, somebody that might have been afraid or terrified in 65, they might have thought the next person was, you know, themselves that was going to be killed. She's not afraid now. You know, maybe she can tell something, you know, one of the roommates or somebody at the bank or some neighbor. So I think that's important. The other thing that's important is technology. So even though some of the things in this case has been, you know, lost or destroyed, not everything has. And so, you know, with people that now would feel more comfortable coming forward, people that said, well, you know, my mother always said this or my father told it this way. Or, you know, I had a neighbor. He used to always say he did it. Anybody that could possibly have any knowledge should absolutely come forward. And if enough people start telling John the same name, then you're onto something. Mm-hmm. Then you cross that with the technology that we now have, we might be onto something. In 65, we didn't have APHIS. We didn't have CODIS. Hell, we didn't have DNA. We, didn't have <laughs> we DNA. got it now. Which certainly ties into Diane Shields. If they're not connected, I'm a monkey's uncle. I mean, they've got to be connected, at least on some level. To understand these cases, first I had to understand what Atlanta was like in the 60s, a decade before I was even born. In 1965, stamps were five cents, gas was 31 cents, and The Sound of Music won an Oscar for Best Picture. It's also a year of civil rights triumphs and tragedies. In February, Malcolm X was assassinated. In August, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act, guaranteeing the right to vote for all African Americans. And in Atlanta, Clay Carroll was a rookie pitcher for the Braves. The Citizens and Southern National Bank was the big name in money. And Mary's case was considered the largest manhunt in Georgia history. Uh, sports teams. Big, That's what I'm saying. Money, money, money. Money, money, money. So Atlanta in 1965 was the largest city in the South. So we've got the Atlanta Braves, we've got the Falcons, we've got the Hyatt Regency Hotel, we've got Coca-Cola, we got Delta. 
there's money flying all over this city. So you're talking about CNS Bank was in the middle of that. Every loan for every stadium went through CNS. Coca-Cola was at CNS. Delta was at CNS. So they had the purse strings, so to speak, with everybody. If you needed a loan, you went to CNS Bank, period. So again, when somebody says, well, could there have been any money under the table? Sure. And, and as far as the mob, of course the mob was here. There was too much money. The Dixie Mafia was here, right? The cornbread mafia, so to speak. You had people understanding that, wait, we've got all these strip clubs too. There's no better way to launder money. So you've got some money that, hey, I gotta make sure this is clean now. You just take it right on down, you know, Stewart Avenue. And then when it comes back around, it's clean. So, of course, no question. And I don't think it's incidental either that she, that Diane especially, might have been left at the dry cleaner. Just saying. Plus, remember the bags of money, the envelopes of money? What does that tell you? you, you even in 1965, mm -hmm. I was, I was, like I said, I was 14 years old. I'd go to a, a bank. They didn't leave money laying around. They right. looked at back then. If anything, the pennies, the dollars, and and, and the sure the, the the pressure. You don't make a mistake at a bank. That's people's money, and then and there's no computers. Everything's by hand, and so more than yep. once, bags of money or envelopes of money being found. What does that tell you? What does that bags? Like thousands and thousands and thousands. Land in the time was a southern city and was a genteel, very southern, very polite on the surface. But then that's something else that added to it. When the police started investigating and started digging into her background and looking at uh, sex perverts, this and that, everything, when all that stuff started coming out in the newspapers, there was this underworld in Atlanta that nobody knew about. The nightclubs, the prostitution, the drugs, already part of the drugs. Then we go back to the where she worked allegations of, of women being used as escorts, as concubines, being forced into this to keep their job. Then there was allegations of lesbian harassment from some of the older women. So you just start piling this stuff up on top of this story. It just, like I said, it just would not die. It wells 52 years later, and here we are. Here we are. But this story isn't about the past. It's about a group of retired detectives, a crime scene investigator, a retired journalist, a profiler, and an attorney who've come together for the past decade to dig into the case files in hopes to dig deep enough to uncover the truth. It just became an obsession. One of the task force members without a law enforcement background is attorney-turned-author Susan Carpenter. She started researching Mary and Diane's stories for a book, and she's been hooked ever since. Since she lives in California now, I gave her a call. Hello. Hi, is this Susan? This is Susan. Hi, Susan, it's Jessica. How are you? I'm fine, Jessica. Let's talk about Miss Mary. I've been working on Mary Shotwell Little about 10 years. Well, maybe six or seven years, maybe, when um, somebody mentioned, you know, of her, that Diane Shields found her body. And so then I could, then um, I started working on that. So I've been working on both of them for a long time. So tell me what spurred your interest in their cases. I graduated from Mercer Law School in Macon when I was 40. And my husband, my late husband, 
at that time, uh, he's 20 years older than me, he's been a young architect in Atlanta when that happened. He saw I was always real interested in researching and reading about crime stories and, you know, that kind of stuff. He said, you need to check into, look up Mary Shotwell Little, see what happened with that, and that's all it took. I um, started researching, I started blogging, I started looking for the records, you know, the case files and all that. I just really wanted to solve it. It seemed like it would be so easy. It seemed like there had to be somebody out there who knew this, see what happened. But the more I dug, the deeper it got. And I firmly believe that those two girls who never knew each other, whatever happened to them, they are connected for eternity for some reason. You're going to run into people who are just going to tell you no way or, or, you know, no way were they connected and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I don't believe it. Honestly, don't believe it. There were so many red herrings thrown all over this. The longer they could get the spotlight off what was really going on, the longer they had to cover everything up. And that is really my theory. I think it was just a cover-up. I think there's so many layers and layers and layers to this. I think it was covered up. That's my bottom line. It was covered up. And I think the Atlanta Police Department was told to cover it up. And that's what they did. The people who are trying to still cover this up want that to go away, I believe. Want that to dispel this thing that there's two two murders. And uh, uh, connected. I think the most important thing about this whole thing is that they're connected. And I think that the way we'll find out what happened is because they're connected. Well, you know, there um, I, uh, people have been after, after me to start writing the book on this. And if, if I did, I'd have to have four different endings, you know, because we just don't know. So many detectives have investigated both cases only to have retired or died before getting the answers everyone is searching for. As John puts it, this is the holy grail of cases, referring to them both. And I think he might be right. As I talked to the task force member by member, I wondered, would they be the group to finally solve these mysteries? Will there be another generation to investigate or will it end with them? Those are the cases that stick with you. More than a half century later, will they finally answer what happened to Mary Shotwell Little? Who killed Diane Shields? And did they both know too much? Five Roses is produced, narrated, and reported by Jessica Knoll and produced by Joe Flaccari. Philip Kish is the digital director. And Aaron Peterson is the executive producer. Brendan Keefe is our TV investigator. Joshua Coates created the graphic. And a special thanks to Annie Campbell. Five Roses is produced for WXIA-TV, 11alive.com, and Tegna Media as part of our ongoing digital series, Gone Cold. We're on Twitter and Instagram as Gone Cold, and we have a Facebook group page you can join and discuss the podcast and other cold cases. You can read about more cold cases and listen to our upcoming monthly podcast by visiting 11alive.com backslash gone cold. <laughs>